When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are people striking against them. TV shows about them are winning Emmys. They make the things you eat and publish the things you read. But have you ever stopped to think about what a corporation really is? Is it a person? A group of people? Or something more complicated? Today, we examine the history of corporate power and how it helped expand the British Empire with Dr. Philip J. Stern. This is Too Complicated for History. Welcome to Too Complicated for History. Today, our guest is Dr. Phil Stern, who is an historian of the British Empire and associate professor of history at Duke University. Uh, thank you for being here, Bill. Well, thanks, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Have been for a while. Now, so for our audience who isn't familiar with your work, could you give us just a brief rundown of like your areas of study? Sure. Uh, you know, so I'm a historian, as you said, a historian of the British Empire. Uh, the, I usually say that. The work I do covers legal, political, intellectual, and economic history, but then I'm always wondering what's left over. But a lot of the work that I do is sort of uh, focused on the ways in which political community is constituted and the ways in which imperial power is constructed, particularly through non-state forms of enterprise, which is, uh, has been a, a, a major focus of my work, not exclusively. I also have done work on uh, political economy and questions of, of, of uh, rethinking economic theory and approaches to the ways in which uh, People understand the relationship, I guess, between the public and the private has been a, a major interest hmm. of mine. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and so your new book is called Empire Incorporated, The Corporations That Built British Colonialism. And, and uh, does it center exclusively around the British East India Company? Is that sort of or is that the main thrust of the book or is that uh, a limited view, like perspective on what that actually means? Well, it, you, you know, uh, so so I wrote a book uh, previously, about uh, 10, 12 years ago, uh, it, it, on the East, East India Company called The Company State, mm. which is about the early modern foundations of the uh, British Empire in India. And so in a way, this is um, uh, kind of builds on that. In, in that earlier book, I, I sort of took on a, what was really a kind of enduring and longstanding way of thinking about the coming of the British Empire in India, which was that the general story was that in the middle of the 18th century, a commercial company had somehow transformed uh, into a territorial empire. It had always been a big mystery. Uh, a lot of people had sort of picked up on the narrative from the 19th century uh, that the British Empire had been acquired in the uh, phrase of uh, the famous phrase of the late 19th century historian John Seeley as in a quote fit of absence of mind. Uh, that the company has sort of just hmm. become a territorial empire almost by accident or by happenstance, or more seriously, usually the story was about that they'd sort of filled in 
a, a kind of gap that had been left by the decline of the Mughal Empire. But this was, of course, a story mm-hmm. that the British had told about themselves from the 19th century on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so th- what I did in that book was looked at how the East India Company, uh, at least my argument in that book, was that the, there was a flaw in that premise that the company had transformed from a commercial to a political body because it had been a political body all along, both as a corporation – which was a, a, in itself a sort of political and legal form that dated back to medieval church governance and to medieval cities and uh, urban boroughs. We still have these models today. Uh, uh, I'm speaking to you from Durham, North Carolina, which is a corporation itself, an urban corporation. Um, but also that, that that kind of looking at the way that early modern Europeans did long-distance trade required forms of governance, required forms of law, Jurisdiction. So essentially to say that there was a kind of groundwork uh, laid for claiming political authority in a variety of ways uh, uh, that the East India Company had that laid the conditions that made it possible for what happened in the middle of the 18th century, both from because it was a corporation in English and European law, but also because it had been for a hundred and some odd years attempting to acquire rights of sovereignty and jurisdiction and power through Asian, particularly Mughal forms of governance as well. Um, so in a way, the new book builds on that, but in a different way, it's also a way of uh, of kind of confronting what what I didn't do in that book. Because after um, mm-hmm. after writing that book, I sort of had one of those um, uh, experiences where you know, like you 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 learn a new word and then you start to see it everywhere. So all of a sudden, <laughs> I started seeing corporations everywhere. And and it became clear to me that there was, there was a phenomenon that was much bigger than the English East India Company. Mm. But what also became clear to me is that that the East India Company had been, in one sense, generative. It had it had laid the groundwork for a lot of these other corporate bodies. But a lot of the other kind of corporations and joint stock companies that filled up the British Empire and helped create it didn't look anything like the East India Company. Were models that sometimes were built mm-hmm. in, in 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 contradiction or in in, in, in you know in, in, in countering the East India Company's model, right? Uh, so it was these two contradictory things I started noticing. One that the East India Company had spawned a lot of these enterprises. I mean, quite literally, in a lot of the things I trace in my book, or I shouldn't say a lot of things, but the, uh, in the book, I have a lot of examples of how the East India Company is cited by people later on in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries as huh. a model for later co- corporate colonialism, even after the East India Company is removed from power and is supposedly become a pariah in the modern period when we're supposed hmm. to have states doing governance and companies just doing trade, you still have people going back in the right. late 19th century, particularly in colonial Africa, saying, well, let's do it like the East India Company. We made a big mistake getting rid of the East India Company. It becomes a, a embedded in huh. imperial hmm. ideology in that way. But at the same time, I wanted to make the point here that this thing, I, what I called in that book, a company state was really mm-hmm. one, this, this large territorial model, the East India Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, the ones you might be very familiar with, was basically the surface, the tip of an iceberg of a very, very large uh, phenomenon of joint stock companies, corporations, uh, commercial companies, but also a bunch of others that didn't look like the East India Company, that exerted sovereignty oh. or jurisdiction or governance in very different ways. Right, so so that is kind of uh, both a um, an extension and also a a, a kind of um, a course change. I don't know if I would, how how I would call it, but a, a sort of looking at the at the implications of that argument. I suppose that's fascinating. You've used the word before. We uh, like get too deep into yeah. the conversation. You use the word corporation a bunch, um, and <laughs> I like I think like I mean, me included, the general public hears that word a lot. 
Um, but could, do you think you could define it for us just so that we have a, like a better understanding of how, what, what we're talking about here? Cause I actually don't know if I could tell you a good sing like a one sentence definition that's of a good corporation, point. to be honest. Yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's actually, that's really good. And that's actually one of the, one of the things that underneath the book I could want to trace is how that word gets used in a bunch of different ways and sometimes used more loosely and more strictly, mm. but like strictly speaking, if we want, it might be helpful to think of a corporation as a body that's created in law or by law or from law, and I, I'm sorry for, for even making my single sentence definition have lots of clauses and complicated uh, <laughs> branches, um, but I'll, if, you, if you're interested, I can explain why I'm being so cautious. But it's a body that's either, that's, that's either sanctified by law or created by law that allows for a group of people or sometimes even a single individual to become a different entity, a singular entity that can act at law as if they were a single person. So um, I don't know if that was a helpful definition, but in other okay. words, a corporation in, in most of its um, manifestations would involve a group of people acquiring a kind of legal status that would allow them to act as a single person would in law, to sue hmm. or be sued. That's a phrase that often comes up in, in early charters for corporations, but also uh, quite critically and centrally to my book and my, my story here, uh, to own property and to convey that property mm -hmm. over time. And to have other kinds of, of uh, rights. And at the core of, in legal theory, what's very kind of one of the interesting is I don't actually talk about it very much in the book, but I got kind of obsessed with it. At the core of the legal theory of the corporation, uh, going back centuries, is that it's something that can have a name. Once you can mm -hmm. name it and give it a name, then it can act in some way, legally speaking. Uh, but of course, huh. as many critics of the corporation from this medieval period to yesterday or tomorrow will we'll sort of tell you it's a very weird kind of person. Uh, and it's yes. a person that, um, yeah. and we know this from contemporary legal controversy about our corporations, people, that sort of thing, because we know that it is kind of, in one sense, a person, but people, critics would always sort of point out, yeah, it's a, it's a person, but it's a person that can't die. It's a person that can't really mm -hmm. be found if you're actually looking for it. A lot of critics, especially in the 17th, 18th century, would point out it's a person, but it has no soul. And without a soul, huh. could it be trusted? So That's these are the kinds of It's interesting since you used the word sanctify earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so I do use that yeah, word yeah. quite, quite <laughs> specifically because so, – so one of the really interesting things about the corporation, and I think it's actually the core argument of my new book, uh, in some sense, is that we still don't know what it is. So I probably should have right. led by saying, like, thanks for that question, but I can't answer it. I mean, I can give you this this once in this <laughs> definition, but when you get deeper into the theory, the legal, political, and conceptual understanding of what the corporation is, it's still a debate rather than a settled concept, mm. right? So, and it gets more mm -hmm. complicated than this, but the best way I can describe it simply is that there are essentially two ways of thinking about the corporation. And of course, there's many, many more, but for the sake of argument, one is that the corporation is something that's created by law, that it's a fiction of law, that, that essentially it's a, it's a, it comes out of sovereignty, that you can't have a corporation unless a state gives you some kind of sanctification, either through um, a charter uh, in an early period or now through a kind of administrative process where you can create a corporation fairly simply, which is some paperwork and some fees. And that story of how that comes to be is an important part of the book. But there's a longstanding and equally old set of arguments, perhaps most famously 
associated with um, uh, the, uh, a group of theorists that tend to collectively be called pluralists in the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that, that would argue that corporations are not essentially made by law. They're just kind of recognized by law. That in fact, what they are is the people who came mm-hmm. together in the first place. They're a community that later goes to the law in some respect for some kind of privileges, but it, that it couldn't exist without the people who came together in the first place. Um, the analogy mm-hmm. that one of the most famous theorists of this uses, I, I, I cited in the book, is that, you know, uh, this is Frederick Maitland, the early 20th century English legal theorist, says the state makes a corporation uh, no more than it makes a marriage, that it essentially sanctifies mm-hmm. it with special rights by law, but didn't create right. the effective bonds that made it happen in the first place. So right. this is a debate. And one of the things I'm, you know, I, I kind of trace in the book is how rather than think about the corporation as a kind of juggernaut or stable entity that actually its power comes from being a paradox from being both of these things at the same time and being able to weave and move and and, hmm. and in some sense being a debate if that makes sense so you asked for one sentence and look Absolutely. what you got you know? <laughs> but so if we could go I guess this from, is why you wrote a book <laughs> you could probably write a whole another book of what you cut out of it i imagine um, yeah don't 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 get me so, started yeah <laughs> Uh, I think it's the first line in your introduction says that it's a this is a new history of British colonialism. So you're talking about these corporations and that they are obviously very foundational to colonialism. So but can you talk to us about how I'm assuming this is new. No one's looked at it this way. So how is British colonialism being looked at before and how does this turn into looking at them via corporations, uh, sort of change the game or change the interpretation of the foundation of the British Empire? So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Right. Is that a great question? Thanks. Uh, um, so I should say with a caveat, many people have looked at corporations before, various different ways. Okay. And, you know, uh, I couldn't have done this book without, and I have a whole bit in that part that I cut out for that whole other book that you'll, you know, get around to, you know, what we call it, the director's <laughs> cut or something of, of this book. Um, yeah. What I've done here is, is, is to try to look at this from a bird's eye view of a phenomenon across 300 or 400 years, which I don't believe anybody's done or hasn't done in, in, in quite some time or certainly in the same way. Uh, but mm-hmm. what's interesting about the book is that as I was writing it, I kept convincing myself more and more of my own argument by the fact that I kept uncovering, you know, an article here, or a book here, or a company I didn't know about, or something that had been studied in its like kind of local or specific setting within the, the history of the British Empire. Um, and I would say, as an aside, as I completed this book, uh, kind of during COVID, uh, during the you know worst of the kind of you know being grounded, um, uh, three in the morning with a lot of coffee, it it um, <laughs> it only made me realize how valuable you know, putting together, synthesizing all of those different perspectives together that aren't kind of aware of the other, the other parts. So that's, that's one of the ways Mm, in which it's kind of essentially putting together a story that had been told locally. Um, And I think there are some parts of the book, some significant parts of the book where I've uncovered new things that people hadn't talked about, or hadn't seen in, in the same way. But I also want to give credit to the wealth of scholars for decades, who have sort of seen this, but in, in kind of, and what's kind of really very interesting to me, and one of the things I love most about history is when I see a kind of phenomenon in the 17th century, and then I see a kind of parallel phenomenon in the 19th century. That, oh, yeah. And by looking at this big arc story, you can kind of put that together in a way that people haven't before. 
that's my first answer to your question. The second, which I'll try to keep a little more brief, is that that said, I do think that the vast majority of the stories we tell about empire, not just the British empire, are stories that focus on the state and state action. That the, the history of the empire tends to, even the concept of the quote-unquote British empire, tends to presuppose mm-hmm. that it's being led by government, for lack of a better term, right? Um, the crown, parliament, the agencies of the state. Uh, we tend to think of it mm-hmm. that way. I don't know who we are in this situation, but, but that's, that's, that's the way, for example, textbooks tend to be written when I teach it. It's the assumption students come into the classroom with. Um, we tend to think of, of, of armies as being, uh, you know, part of the state. We tend to think of bureaucracies as being part of the state and these sorts of things. So I, when I say that as a new history, it's, it's trying to say that, you know, when we tell a long, the long history story of the British Empire, what happens if we look at it from the perspective of this other actor that's so critical to making empire happen, so to speak, uh, in the introduction mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, ref- I, 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 I liken it to um, sort of a, uh, what, what would I suppose letter scholars might call a minor character narrative. You know, you could think of it as the kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of, of, uh, of imperial history. But what happens when we take a character that we all know is there, right? And we all sort of pay attention to, but we always think is sort of like um, being pulled along through history rather than, than necessarily mm. driving it. Or if we do think that they're driving it, we think they're driving it in a particular way. So the third way that I might answer your question is that what I wanted to look at were not these companies as commercial bodies, particularly, and this where maybe goes back to my interest in the East India Company, um, but to show how how joint stock companies and corporations, which are not always the same thing, but essentially these private bodies were taking on forms of public governance throughout the history of empire. But not only that, they were making an argument. They they proposed an ideology that suggested that that's how empire should happen, and I think that's critical to maybe understanding um, a particular story of, uh, about empire. I don't want to claim that it's the only one. I wouldn't want this book to replace the other book as the only way to tell the story. It's it's this is empire is too devastating and too complicated of a thing yeah. to have only one way to look at it. Right. I may be wrong in making this parallel in my head, but but. Did you find any connections between this that exploration of exerting power through non-state action and the notion of like 20, late or second half of twentieth century, like soft power, uh, you know, and how sort of you know cor- our corporate entities export you know American culture across the board? Was there any any connections there, or did you stay away from sort of drawing modern parallels to this? Because um, seeing some uh, connection in my head, but I might be wrong. No, I mean, no, I have no problem with the parallelism. Part of, I mean, if part of why I wrote this book is because I'm, in, I'm a historian of the British Empire and I'm invested in, in, in thinking about this, I'm also uh, someone who lives in the world around us. And sure. uh, there's, you know, there's no doubt that my work over, on this over the last several decades has been conditioned by thinking about the role non-state forms of power play in our lives, everything from, you know, global corporations, social media or technology corporations to, you know, any range of, 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 of places. You know, I wrote my dissertation in New York, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands in the wake of nine 11, there, there, there are ways you start, you know, mm. the world has presented us to think about how, about the limits and the power of the state. And then it's, 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 it's efforts to reassert itself in the face of those challenges. And so, so I have no problem with the, with the, um, and I not only do I have no problem, I think it's actually critical. I think it's actually a really important job history 
hmm. needs to do is to shed light in the present. But there's two caveats I would want to make to that. One is that in, a, in, a, in an ideal way, we would do that through what I say in the book is, is genealogy, not analogy, right? So that we would look at the origin okay. stories of these phenomena rather than go back in the past and say, well, that looks like the East India Company. Because those comparisons I've written on ah. this too, where the comparisons become really problematic. Um, and mm -hmm. it's very common and typical to do that sort of thing. Um, and as someone who started his career as a historian of the East India Company, um, and you asked me before, like, you know, is this book about East? I hope there's the East India Company's through the book. I hope it's 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 a lot more than than that. The East India Company does have the um tendency for a lot of people to be a little like um that line from the Godfather, you know, just when you think you're out, it keeps pulling you back in. But the um <laughs> uh but the truth is that that um there's the it's the one that that people often have heard about and go to and will compare everything to and it's very it's also politicized i mean today you will see a lot of global corporations or other entities compared to the east india particularly in india but but not exclusively uh because it it, it resonates in a certain way um to me there's there's a value to that to helping to think a little bit um good to think with as they say but I also think we need to think of the origin stories of that. But the second thing that I guess I'd want to say to your point is that I think there's a lot to be said for your analogy or for your for your comparison. But I guess my book is actually about the hard power that corporations and drug yeah. companies assert, right? The tendency we have is to see this is exactly the thing what I meant when we want to push back against the idea that the corporations sort of follow the flag, so to speak, or something like that, right? That it's not just that the that companies have this power through um, commodities or through trade or through media or through influence to exert what you know we think of as soft power. But the companies in my book govern. The companies in my book mm -hmm. claim jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. They assert the right to be government. And again, it's a long book with lots of twists and turns. So there's some caveats to this. If I could put this in the kind of uh, the sort of nerdy or historiographical perspective, you know, what you called soft power, I think has often been, um, at least for the last 50, 70 years or so by historians, uh, distinguished two different kinds of empires that are out there, right? Formal and informal empires. Um, and so Lynn, mm -hmm. going back to your question of, you know, what's different about this or, or what, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, the, I'm definitely not the first person to make this critique of the concept of informal empire. But one of the arguments mm -hmm. I make is that, that there's a global phenomenon of these kinds of forms of private enterprise going out and doing public governance. And that we can look at, say, Latin America, where we, where historians have often thought of British power in the 19th and 20th centuries as being informal through financial means or through influencing government backed up by military power. And then place like India, where it's formal because there's actually a, a governmental structure. And to say, well, what does it matter that they're both being done by companies to some extent at various points in time? And you start to actually see some striking similarities in, at moments in time. Um, the kind of jurisdiction and sovereignty that a railway company might exert in the 19th century may not look like territorial power to our modern eyes. It may be exerted over, you know, a long corridor, or it might be exerted, you know, with a hundred miles to the north and south of the railway line. Mm. But it still involves governing over people, making claims over territory or property, um, populating areas, uh, displacing populations, claiming indigenous territory and rights and reasserting those forms of power. And all this aside, 
What's really striking as a historian of this, it kind of constantly surprises me, you wouldn't think it would anymore, is how through all of this, many of these bodies are thinking of what they're doing as colonization, mm-hmm. literally. Hmm. Right. You know, the, with the, 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 the colonization becomes, especially by the 19th century, a positive ideology that is being that that, that people think of as 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 sort of related to state building and tracing Mm -hmm. that genealogy helps us to understand how we get to the modern world in some ways and so thinking about a mining company or um, or a logging company that creates a plantation as they would call it we would you know think of that as a commercial enterprise but Mm -hmm. those are very real people that are displacing very real people and forms of mm. of power that we see that where the lines again between public and private get extremely blurry, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, just to put into context how relevant this stuff is actually currently for our listeners, uh, this isn't exactly the same because it's not about colonialism or colonization necessarily. But there is a, a debate going on currently in Florida about Disney and the nature of mm-hmm. how much they can actually govern over their over the land that they own and how what the role of the local government is and, and it, so the lines are like you said mm-hmm. blurrier than we actually think even today um which is su- super super neat to explore I brought I brought that example up as a kind of point of you know to try to contextualize this in a talk I recently gave and it was so interesting to people that the Q&A ended up mostly focusing on this question of Disney in Florida, which I know about as much about as anybody else from reading the news. <laughs> if you take the same stories I'm telling, right, the analogy, I mean, Disney is not the East India Company, even if they did mm-hmm. put right. the East India Company in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, right? Um, but the uh, <laughs> that would be a very difficult analogy, right? But if you start to think, mm, right. okay, if you start to open your mind to how something like colonialism, something we so associate with state power, is being done by, and, and sort of like break open our categories of what's public, what's private, what's state, what's company, these sorts of things. Then you look at a something like that, and you start to be able to to, to see outside of our categories of government and and business, and sort of right. uh, rethink those. But what I was going to say is that let's take it to an, uh, I think a more direct analogy, which is our essentially second or third, how you want to count it, space race. That's going on mm-hmm. largely at the behest of, of private corporations and it's like SpaceX, which has proclaimed a, a desire, a long-term goal of colonizing Mars. It, you know, more or less in those terms. Uh, hmm. And so it's it's not as if uh, you know, and it, it's not as if they do this absent or unrelated to the state. The relationship between these companies and say NASA or the European Space Agency is very complicated. Much like the examples I give in the book, they're kind of intertwined. They're connected, but they're also sometimes in tension with each other. Uh, there's lessons we can learn. It's just a question of how one-to-one the analogies are. Sure. That makes right. sense. And one, one example that I've been thinking about that might be helpful to our listeners to illustrate the ideas that we're talking about and that they may have heard of is um, the Virginia Company, because I had never really... I mean, to me, I always, I always read about the Virginia Company, but it, I never really stopped and thought what does this mean that it's a company? I assumed it was these group of men just had some money and were trying to benefit by creating, you know, a group that they called a company. But it really had a big impact, did it not, on sort of the creation of certainly Virginia, but then the, the, the you know, North American colonies? 
Absolutely. Uh, incidentally, another one Disney took on at one point, the Pocahontas movie. So I guess we are back to Disney <laughs> See, it all, in some It all way. comes together. Um, all roads lead back to Disney. <laughs> it is, it is, it's, all, it's all connected. This is what I'm talking about. You look back in history, you see patterns. But the um, uh, no, I mean, the Virginia Company plays an important role uh, in, 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 in my book and in this story. Uh, again, both as a kind of foundation for colonial expansion in North America, but also as a as 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 one of a number of other companies and bodies like this that are competing with each other for uh, for settlers, for rights, for land. No, simultaneous to the Virginia Company, there's also attempts uh, to uh, uh, at an Amazon company, not not the not that Amazon company, but the, a company for the actual Amazon, um, you know, to, 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 uh, to follow up on, on plans to, to colonize in, uh, uh, in, in, you know, what we think of as South America that, that were, you know, competing with, to some extent with the Virginia company for where they would go. In fact, actually, you know, um, the colonists who, uh, get on a ship called the Mayflower and end up in the Plymouth colony, which technically was in a sense, uh, a colony that was under the jurisdiction of the Virginia Company in a complicated way, mm-hmm. uh, before they left Leiden, had actually entertained the possibility of going to Guiana instead. Um, not mm-hmm. under the auspices of that company, but under the auspices of some of, the, some of its, its its forerunners. So again, it opens our mind up to thinking about history not through teleology, as we say, right? Not through what eventually emerged as the colony, but what were the possibilities at the time? There was a Newfoundland Company mm-hmm. uh, that was also at the same time the Virginia Company. As, 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 as I'm sure you know, was originally actually two companies, uh, one for kind of the northern parts of North America, which eventually became something called the Council for New England, uh, which was another corporation, kind of a, a, a company of sorts, a joint stock company of sorts. Uh, so, so the Virginia Company is both extremely crucial, but it's also part of an ecology uh, of, of how this colonization was working in the early 17th century. Uh, other interesting thing about the Virginia Company is we think of it as um, so pivotal. It's probably one of the few that would come first to people's minds. Only was around for about twenty years uh, until it was taken mm-hmm. over. Until it essentially was uh, t- t- taken over by 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 the crown. It became a, and Virginia became a crown colony. Interestingly enough, something actually I'll admit to my great uh, shame. I did not know until I was researching this book that then um, it's it's taken over uh, by the crown in 1625. But in the 1630s, there are actually proposals for bringing it back. So one of our narratives is that these companies eventually doesn't succeed because there's forces that push back against the proposal. But one of our narratives, I think we've inherited from the 19th century, is that these companies were, even if they did exist, they're kind of naturally destined to be taken over by the proper form of government of the state. But in my view, it seems a little more like one of those uh, boardwalk games of whack-a-mole. You know, as they kind of pop up, they're popping up all over the place. And you have right. these other entities in society, including the various agencies of the state that maybe want to rein them in, or maybe the people that we're talking about calling the state are actually connected to the companies or invested in them or part of them. It, it, um, it's never, you can't generalize across history about what those relationships look like, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Sorry, I took your question with the Virginia Company and I, I just went off in all kinds of ways, but no. That was that was fantastic. In fact, you made me think of something else because, you know, we are talking about these companies as though they are these individual creatures. But now I'm wondering, especially, you know, Virginia Company and these these early ones, who are these men, I assume, who are these men who are creating these companies and how did they come about 
being created? Is it just people with a lot of money who want power and say, hey, let's get together and see if we can control this new land? Or how does this work? So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. So this is where I also get frustrating because the answer is <laughs> yes. I mean, the, the, the answer is, you know, so, you, you know, in, in it, one of the other things, you, when you look at this, you know, I'm, I'm one of those terrible historians who always wants to say it's just so much more complicated. I make for a terrible interview. But in a lot of these cases, what you, you, you know, these are, you might say they're members of the mercantile or merchant community uh, who are either looking for new markets or who are investing, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a possibility of new land. Um, or sort of going back to the 16th century where my book starts, you know, there's some people are sort of interested in this for trade. Some people are interested in it for land. Some people are interested in it for mines. You know, they're seeing the Spanish in Mexico and Peru and thinking, maybe we'll find this somewhere else. They're interested in it for strategic advantage, you know, sell it either, either at the behest of the crown or trying to, in a sense, um, uh, sell it to the crown or other other agents of the state as a, you know, let's make an end run around Spain or France or something like that. Some who are in it for souls, right? Many, many a lot of this is a surprising amount, or maybe perhaps not so surprising amount of these enterprises are people who are motivated by a sense of religious mission and proselytization and conversion, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There's no rule that says you can only be one of those people. They combine and recombine in right. various different ways. One of the sort of other through lines of the book, although I, I'm not 100% sure that I, I, I make it as explicitly as I probably could have, there's um, a, 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 a very powerful argument um, that I think has had a lot of uh, influence in the historiography of the British Empire that's mostly focused on the 19th and 20th century, the, uh, the work of, of, uh, of two historians by, uh, called Kane and Hopkins that um, sort of argues that what drove 19th and 20th century Empire Forward was something they called gentlemanly capitalism, a kind of relationship between capitalists and, and especially service sector capitalism and the state largely uh, curated through um, uh, cultural connections, right? People who were part of the elite went to the same uh, schools, Oxford and Cambridge, you know, participated in the same clubs and sort of could, could, could talk to each other and, and had these kinds of connections and probably just done extreme violence to that extremely complicated involved argument but you know taking it at that simplistic level that i've just given it i mean that is actually true but what i also found just to get to your point of who are these people like when i got to the you know even the 17th but the early 18th centuries mm -hmm. sure some of these people running these companies or driving these companies were what we might think of as gentlemanly capitalists you know people connected to and accepted by high society mm -hmm. um but some of them were exactly the opposite right hmm. rogues you know, um, scammers, people who maybe were trying to um, whitewash their reputation by putting it in the in the cloak of patriotism or colonial expansion, uh, people who were maybe out for a profit and who people in the halls of power of government were deeply skeptical of because they were they were suspicious of their motives. One of the sort of most iconic examples of company colonialism in the early 19th century is something called the South Australia Company, which becomes the South Australian Association. Uh, and the guy who essentially becomes the sort of leading figure in that company, uh, uh, by all reports, came up with the idea and wrote the first piece of propaganda for its enterprise while he was in Newgate Prison. And he was in Newgate Prison for having attempted to kidnap a 15-year-old girl 
uh, uh, heiress and forcibly and marry her to essentially oh, um, become heir to her fortune. This huh. is not, mm-hmm. and, and this was not a secret. And it was, you know, so he was connected to some people, but also the, one of the most important figures in the, the colonial office, one of the major um, agencies of the British government that sort of governed over colonialism, you know, thought this was the most horrible person he'd ever met, right? So your question, who does these things? It's kind of everybody, <laughs> Right in different capacities, and that's kind of the point. One of the points I want to make in the book, which is that you know, you ask again, like, what's you know, how is this new, or or, or what, what's the point I'm trying to make? Is one is that that by mm-hmm. having colonialism, that's that's essentially this kind of massive speculative enterprise, one that's so driven by all these different attempts to kind of throw things against the wall and see what sticks. It essentially mm-hmm. literally invests people. I mean, people who are literally invested in these companies that invested in empire in a very broad way. It really sucks in all different sorts. And conversely, it lets us see just how much of society it takes and was implicated in colonialism in that respect. You mentioned a couple of other countries and uh, uh, this, and I want to ask you, is this of this corporate colonialism? Is that, an exclusively British phenomenon, or did it happen in Spain and France and the other nations, or were those more, you know, governmental enterprises? Yeah, just British. I mean, I wrote a book about British colonialism, but it's only British. It has to be. No, no, I'm joking. Hmm. It's um, no, no. <laughs> no. In fact, okay. actually, yeah. I hundred percent believed you. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll have to put. Can we put some kind of d- disclaimer? Or there's got to be some way of flagging that on the recording. He's trying to be funny and failing here. Um, no, and in fact, uh, I'm just very uh, gullible. <laughs> uh, quite, quite the opposite. Um, uh, uh, no, it, it's actually a European-wide. So I, I worry about this, which is, which is why I, I deflect with humor, because I, I worry about this because I wrote a book about the mm. British Empire. I try to say it in the introduction as clearly and as, as firmly as I possibly can, but you know you can't say it enough. Just because I wrote a book about the British Empire doesn't mean this is a British phenomenon. And you not only have the same, as I, let's say similar, but maybe developing on different trajectories phenomenon, say, in the Netherlands. The Dutch East India Company is perhaps even a more famous example than the English East India Company, right, in some ways. Uh, but in France, uh, and even in places like Spain and Portugal, uh, you, uh, you, which are tend to be thought of by historians as kind of state-driven enterprises, actually, you get a lot of examples, especially, again, the East India Company becomes a, a, a model in the, in the 18th century, uh, a guy by the name of John Cleland, uh, who um, most people would know as the author of, of Fanny Hill, uh, the kind of semi-pornographic <laughs> novel from the 18th century. Um, uh, before that, had actually had worked for the East India Company, had been a, a, an official in Bombay, and had hooked up with some people in Portugal. It's a kind of more involved, really fascinating story, but I'll, I'll try to spare you for now, uh, to essentially try to pitch Lisbon on creating its own East India Company in the 18th century to revive its sort of 16th and 17th century fortunes in the East Indies. So it's, it's, it's a process that both is paralleled throughout Europe, but also iteratively connected in the sense that mm-hmm. these people all know what one another are doing. And I'll say two more things about that. One is that one of the phenomena that I sort of trace intermittently through the book are these kinds of people who go around trying to sell their ideas across boundaries. So you get all kinds of oh, okay. company promoters or colonial figures, people with experience 
you know, say in the English East India Company, who the English East India Company, you know, one of the features of being a corporation in the early modern period, less so, but maybe not not necessarily not in the modern period, is having a, what critics would call a monopoly, you know, the kind of exclusive mm-hmm. right. The East India Company technically is the only English company that should be allowed to travel to or trade in the East Indies. Now, that didn't mm-hmm. stop a lot of other people from doing it. it, didn't actually stop the Crown from giving out a bunch of charters to other people at the same time to do it. And that's a kind of interesting aspect of the story. Um, but so maybe you have an employee of the East India Company, which happened a lot, who, uh, like there was a guy in the 18th century who was basically kicked out of the East India Company for saying lots of nasty things about them. And he, his name was William Boltz, mm. and he went to, um, to Sweden, to the King of Sweden, said, hey, do you want a, a colony? And eventually ends up trying to create a colony in, in, in the Pacific, which he, um, he very modestly calls Boltzholm. Uh, there were in the um, <laughs> there were in the seventeenth um, century all kinds of figures. There was a, a guy I talk a bit about in the book who was a former director of the Dutch East India Company, who had a falling out uh, with the company, having embezzled some money from them, and it gets a little nasty. Who flees the Netherlands and then first convinces uh, the French king. And some investors to try a stab at a French East India Company, then mm-hmm. creates his own company and sends his son and someone else on a on a mission around what we now think of as the Straits of Magellan, uh, and then makes his way to England, where he attempts to get a charter from the King of England, time which is J- James I, James the Sixth of, of Scotland, uh, that would essentially have. Uh, uh, violated the East India Company's charter, but they seriously consider it, although they don't end up actually doing it. So these these guys kind of go, there are these people who go around selling their ideas. Uh, last example I'll give, or you can just shout me down uh, if there's too many. It, you, lest we think of this as some kind of like 17th century thing that is, oh, they did that back then. But like when we get to the mm-hmm. modern period, like we all know we're, Britons know they're Britons and French know they're French. And um, One of the most striking things uh, I from stumbled across in this in the late 19th century, the uh, guy by the name of George Goldie, who was the um, sort of uh, deputy governor, but really the leader of what's known as the Royal Niger Company, which essentially is the foundations for the British colony of Nigeria, uh, essentially mm-hmm. threatens after creating this company, is attempting to get a charter from the British Crown to to essentially give him some kind of um, status in international law, something he can go to the French and the Belgians and the Germans and say. You know, I, I have the authority of the British government, and he. Um, one of his threats, when they're sort of, well, we don't do this anymore. We don't want to give you a charter. He says, well, okay, I can. I'm about to actually uh, acquire two French companies. The company was buying out two French companies. He says, once we buy these French companies, I can just go to the French and get a charter from the French. And sort of makes that sort of. I you know now was he bluffing? Would they call call his bluff? You know, I don't know, but. It's a pretty striking thing to imagine, something we think of as the Royal Niger Company. It takes on that name after it gets a charter. And previous to that had been called the National African Company. They used this language of being a national British instrument. But really, because they're companies mm-hmm. with international investors, international commitments, transnational mm-hmm. movements, employees from all over the place, it really, you ask again, like go back to your question, like what's new about this history? I wouldn't say it's new. It's not that I'm the first historian to ever say something like this, but it really challenges our the coherence of our idea of Britain or France or the British Empire, the French right. Empire, when we think about this. And there's many examples of, um, you know, say in 19th century Africa, in Southeast Africa, 
of Portuguese chartered companies that are majority owned by British shareholders. Is that a Portuguese company? Is it a British company? What is that? Mm. I I couldn't really tell you other than to describe it to you, right? Yeah, that reminds me actually of another critique of modern corporations uh, uh, that that some people have is that they're not citizens. Right. But they are crossing these boundaries. They're, you know paying taxes in, in, in other countries, but owned by, you know, Google, I think is, or I forget which, what of them, a bunch of them have headquarters in Ireland for, you know, tax purposes, uh, you yeah. know, but they're yeah. owned in principally by Americans, uh, and run by Americans. So they, yeah, it's an interest. That's, I, again, I, I think it's a really useful exploration even to think, cause we think our world is so complicated and things are complex mm-hmm. and this is whatever, but it, it, it's always kind of been that way. <laughs> yeah, our world had to come from somewhere. And it's not just that our world had to come from somewhere. And this is where I get back to genealogy and analogy. A lot of the conditions, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I have a, a bit of an epilogue in the book. I, I, to be honest, I would, uh, that's maybe the other book I might write. There's, there's a whole book in my head about this that I've never quite fleshed out. But there's also, it's not just that the world has been that complicated, but colonialism in the way that it created these international systems created a lot of the potential for that kind of global wide range of different forms of jurisdictional forms and spaces around the mm-hmm. world even though many of them now look like states you know in the, in the second half of the 20th century we kind of it, there's one version of international law that only recognizes states you know there's only only, only nations get little plaques and you know little seat in seats in the in the united nations but when you actually think about the players in any given political situation it doesn't necessarily only involve nations and the relationships between the nations and these other entities is not you can't describe them simply you know the 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 way that i think of it is you know sometimes they're in partnership sometimes they work in tandem and sometimes they're in in tension with each other in 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 actually in conflict um and you see that a lot Mm. in the in, in the book and you see it a lot in the modern world which is that sometimes these bodies are trying to leverage each other and sometimes they are overlapping. You know, the East India Company. I think I, I'm, I'm going to botch the statistic. It's in the book. I'll, I should look it up. Give, give me, give me a minute or two to find it. But it's something like at some point in the in the when the East India Company is engaging in its massive uh, sort of territorial expansion, in the middle 18th century, something like a third of parliamentarians are shareholders in the company. But huh. but then ask me or don't ask me, please. Uh, does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> that the company is doing the state's bidding or the state is doing the company's bidding or that it's, it, you know, right. it, 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 and especially when both. the company, yeah. well, well, and especially when, when here's the other thing, and this is one of the things that drives me nuts. And it's one thing I always talk to my students about. It's something I, I, I it's actually one of my highest, most like important uh, things I like to focus on as a teacher of uh, questions, you know, political ideology and, and questions of sovereignty, which is that how could you exist in the world today? look around the world today and think, and then look at the past and just assume everybody agreed with one another, right? The, the, you know, the world around us today tells us anything. It tells us that no society at any time was in complete lockstep with itself, right? Absolutely. So even the East India company or any of these companies I'm looking at, especially when they get larger and larger, have debates, you know, internal to themselves that are saying, you know, we should do X. No, we should do not X, right? leadership that gets displaced over those kinds of plans. We still, I mean, today, you know, um, so when we, we, we do this thing, you asked me before, what is a corporation? 
uh, you know, other people have written on this much better than I have, but the, one of the things that we do with the, with the corporation, you know, the corporation makes this kind of legal body, but it also does this kind of interesting thing where it makes a kind of um, concept that we then, mm-hmm. there's a unity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually, it still remains to be a, a kind of group of people that can disagree, that can have defectors, can have a, lot, so a number of the companies in my book come because there's a bunch of people disaffected with a particular company who go off and make their own company to compete with them, right? Which we see in modern business and modern, you know, even even modern states all the time, Absolutely. civil wars of sorts. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, this has got me down like a whole lot, like another, like a whole nother set of questions about, you know, <laughs> the, the origin of the organization of those things in relation to like monarchical governmental systems and sort of like the creation. Because that if you just to give us a, t- a time frame the, of your book, it covers about roughly what time period? So it, it, essentially from the 16th century through to the early to the 20th century, um, Wow. Okay. Though um, the book actually tracks, um, I, I've organized it chronologically, so anybody who wants to dip into one part or another can, and it, it essentially follows that that sort of longer arc across the centuries. But yeah, it's, it's essentially trying to that 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 I do think is what one of the um, more original or foolish, depending on how you look at it, um, things I tend <laughs> to do with this book, which is really kind of capture the story from that big from that long arc. You know, is a uh, uh, trying to see things, see what what things look like when you really um, talk about them, you know, across patterns. I, I, I don't know if anybody will find this persuasive, but uh, in the book, I I I try to make the case that this, one could think of this as kind of a a chaos theory uh, approach to um, to to thinking about empire or any kind of historical mm-hmm. phenomenon, which is that in, in any given moment, things look like they might be random. Or they might be unique or sui generis or idiosyncratic, but when you actually look at them across time and space, you know, a butterfly flapping its wings in one part of history creates a phenomenon, right. another kind of it, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, and I'm sure there will be someone listening who will tell me how I grossly don't understand chaos theory, but for the purposes of <laughs> of the <laughs> argument that I'm making, the point is that 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 patterns, you know, you just see patterns and you see. Um, connections and evolution. So the 19th century companies are not like the 17th century companies, but mm-hmm. they are. They can. They. they uh, it's almost in right. the metaphor of genealogy. They're descendants. They. They bear genetic family resemblances, but no one would say you are completely confined to your genetics or necessarily like identical to. But sometimes you know, great 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 grandchildren look a lot like their great 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 grandparents. You know. Right. Yeah, I, I would yeah, say just but, for our listeners, you know, there's you don't need to understand chaos theory any deeper than Jeff Goldblum explains at the beginning of Jurassic Park. So, you know, well, that's good to go there. Where do you think I did my? Where do you think? Where, where do you think I did my research? I mean, this is this is. This is yeah. the, you know, I assume that's going to be in the citations at the back of the book. I, you know, I should go back. I need to go back and do a second edition now. The, um, I, you know, if I could, if I could take off. Uh, on something you, you mentioned, I don't know if you were meaning to ask this question, but remember before I was sort of talking about these two kind of pathways towards how to think about the corporation, you know, one that thinks about mm-hmm. the corporation as a fiction of law that's created by the law and therefore a creature of sovereignty, and one that thinks of the, the, the corporation as real or um, right. or mm-hmm. an actual collection of people who are only, in a sense, 
given authority by the state, right? Um, the people who argued the latter, you know, the early 20th century in particular, but uh, you see it going back to, say, even a resistance theory and the 16th and 17th century arguments about the nature of political community are essentially trying to say there's multiple centers of authority. The, the state is not the only place. Uh, you know, a lot, say, for example, in the early 20th century, a lot of people make this argument to say, support the, um, the advent of trade unionism. Or, or, or other places where people might mm. gather that shouldn't be touched by the state, right? Mm-hmm. But right. what's interesting, and one of the this is one of the points I make in the beginning of the book, and I, I really find this fascinating. It's one of the actually intellectually one of the more kind of confounding ideas that drove me to write this book. There's an interesting dilemma that's embedded in the fiction theory of the state, um, of the sorry, the fiction theory of the corporation. Because, and bear with me for a second, but if if there's one way of thinking about the corporation as a fiction, as a legal fiction. You've heard these terms, right? It's a, it's a fictional person. It's an artificial person. This is the, for those, for, you know, those listening in the United States, the, 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 the citizens United case and the Supreme court this was, this was the, yeah. the controversy over this. Right. But what's interesting in, and this is not my argument, but I, but other historians have, have made this argument years ago is that that theory, which arises in the 13th and 14th century medieval church, as a way of kind of understanding how local authority relates to central papal authority also becomes an argument for understanding the papacy and then eventually monarchy as itself a form of power. Um, uh, The most famous example of this is, um, uh, and again, not talk about trying to, anyone listening can Google this right now, is the frontispiece to Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, where, you know, Hobbes may be, you know, one of the most influential theorist of the modern state who makes an argument, and this is an argument that's, that, that's made by the historian Quentin Skinner to some extent. Um, uh, so I should I need to give that credit and then excuse myself for maybe getting the argument a little wrong. But I'll just put it this way, which is to say, if you look at the famous sort of cover to Leviathan, it is an image of the Leviathan, of the, of, of, of the sovereign, made up of all the little people of the, of the polity inside of the person of the crown literally the body mm-hmm. politic right right um right and so in, in okay. other words the point is is that corporation theory the idea that you could take a bunch of people and turn them into some other entity that's singular and transcendent and exists throughout time and any one of them can disappear or leave or die and the thing itself still stays an 18th century uh legal theorist uh referred to it as like a corporation is like the t- the river thames always changing and always the same thing at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was necessary to come up with the idea of the modern state, of modern state sovereignty. The idea that a group of people could be mm-hmm. a singular body that exists throughout time. So you, you, you have the same theory that gives you the idea that we have a singular, transcendent, supreme modern state, and a theory that could also give you its opposite, the idea that there are multiple centers of power that can challenge that state. And that's what I meant by the paradox that the corporation is at its basic fundamental level. And then just to add a third, just if, they, if, if that doesn't make your head spin enough, the third aspect of it, which we've seen in modern world, is that the fictional theory of the state is, gets back to your particular point, that, that it's not a citizen. It's not a normal person. That then allows for right. this thing that's supposed to be created by the state to go around making weird claims about what kinds of rights it should have, whether that's mm-hmm. rights to right. religion or rights to free speech, rights to due process, 
you know, these sorts of things. Um, there's a there's a, a whole other history to this in modern American jurisprudence that may be relevant to people, but I'll step into some things I don't understand quite as well, so I should keep myself there, except to say that there's a great history in the modern world of corporations claiming rights as persons, and then because they're not the same kind of person, mobilizing those rights to outsize, to, to far more power than an individual person could possibly have. Yeah. Huh. That's, wow. That's super interesting. I, yeah, and I think that... It's a, I think, a really great, uh, uh, sort of like, philosophical space to end on. Um, but they like let our audience let simmer in a couple of those ideas, and then uh, go out and buy the book our, or here. <laughs> yeah, and then go out to buy the book to get some more insight. Um, <laughs> we like to leave you with questions. <laughs> a lot um, to ponder. But so, um, is there any place that um, you know our, our audience might be able to find you, or do you have any do you, uh, any social media or anything like that, or just just the books are, are the best place to to check out your work? Yeah, the book. I think find me in the bookstore. I, I, I'm a, a, a you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm strangely absent uh, from social media, uh, which uh, doesn't doesn't do me a whole lot of good promoting the book, but uh, has has been a choice I've made, which I'll stand by. But the um, so you can find me. I mean, you know, you can find me. Uh, I, I I teach and work at Duke University, so you know, I'm sure sure if anybody needs to reach me, they can they can find me through some of the more traditional um, means. But uh, but unfortunately. Uh, that's that's uh, the the other global corporations that I don't, I don't I'm not part of. <laughs> You're definitely better for it. Yes, and and we'll put a we'll put awesome. a link to to purchase your book in our notes in our uh, the notes for yeah, the podcast. Yeah, in, in our show descriptions, there'll yes. be links to so, all of Phil's books. Yep. Um, the latest one, the yes. Empire Incorporated Corporations that Built British Colonialism, uh, which is out now. You can go check it out, and and maybe uh. uh be able to wrap your head around some of the ideas that we just talked about. So um, thanks so much for being with us, Phil. Uh, thanks for having me. This was a load of fun. I, I, I hope I didn't make... This is too, great. Too, too, uh, didn't leave on too abstract of a note there, but... <laughs> you leave us thinking. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.